0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way, sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When you consider... The example of John the Baptist, as we catch up to him here in chapter 11, you begin to realize that all of the warnings that Jesus gave in chapter 10, the hypotheticals that he spun about how the gospel might be received, these are actually being lived out in the life of John. John the Baptist is actually suffering the things that Jesus warns his messengers would endure. John has been persecuted. He's been imprisoned, and as we know, he will be executed. We, of course, also face the same hardships, have received the same warnings. As we see the example of John, we might say to ourselves if even John is treated this way, even this great prophet is treated this way, how can there be any doubt that we who follow Christ will face the same hardships, the very things? that Jesus has foretold. And yet, those hardships should assure us in the same way that they do in John's example as well. If even John is treated this way, then you can have no doubt that your hardships aren't a sign that you're somehow out of God's favor, that you've done the wrong thing. If even the greatest prophet of Christ's coming endured these things, then when we endure them, they shouldn't lead us to question Or to doubt, if anything, they point to the fact that we are united to Christ. You may object, sure, but I'm no John the Baptist. When I was tested, I didn't follow faithfully. When I suffered, I questioned. I doubted. I was not faithful in the way that I ought to have been. And yet, even here, I think John can be an encouragement to us. Because when we hear from John now, we hear that John has questions. That John has been shaken. That he has doubts, uncertainties. John's example should encourage us in our questions, in our uncertainties. Because the way that Jesus deals with him is the way that Jesus deals with with us when he finds us questioning, when he finds us uncertain in the midst of our suffering. But the question I have for you is this, what's behind John's question? What is he really asking Jesus when he asks, are you the one to come or should we look for another? I've griped about this before, but I have a little bit of an issue when people use their imaginations to try to get into the heads of characters in Scripture and imagine why they do what they do and why they say what they say. Uh, One of my big complaints is uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the way that he opens his book Fear and Trembling with this series of uh, imaginary versions of Abraham where he tries to understand Abraham's thought process when he's called upon to sacrifice Isaac, why he does what he does, and he gives us different versions of the mindset of Abraham, which I find satisfying because I feel like they, they, they fall short in a really significant way, which is that they don't take into account everything that we know about Abraham. You might think of this as a, a novelist's objection to people making up stories about characters in the Bible. As a novelist, you're always making up stories. You're trying to imagine getting into the heads of characters. But when you do that with historical characters, you have to take all the data into account. You want to know a lot about Abraham, his experience, what he knew about God, his relationship to God, before you go speculating about what must have been in Abraham's mind in that moment. And the same thing is true for John the Baptist. If you want to understand the question that John was asked from prison, you've got to start, I think, by taking who John was, what he knew, what he'd experienced, seen and witnessed. And as you speculate, you have to remember all of those things. You can't just ask, what would I do in this situation? What would prompt me to ask a question like this? You have to figure out what would motivate him to ask such a question. And if we're going to get into John's head, we're going to need context. Now, here we are being reintroduced to John. The last time we met with him was all the way back in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel. But when we saw that, John had some experiences that were pretty incredible. It was John who was proclaiming the kingdom. John was the one telling people to repent, to prepare themselves because the Messiah was coming, the kingdom is at hand. It was John who announced, who signaled to the people that Jesus was the one, that he was the Messiah. It was John who baptized Jesus. And that baptism, which if you can recall when we look at it, parallels the anointing of a king. Right? The Messiah is literally the anointed one. John is the one who applied those baptismal waters to the king whose kingdom was being inaugurated. He is the one who witnessed the reaction from heaven to that act. That's all his experience. In chapter 9, we encountered some followers of John. Remember, they asked Jesus questions about fasting. And although we don't get a lot of detail, we at least know that from chapter 3 to chapter 9, John's ministry has continued. John is still out there. He still has followers. He's still preaching his message. He's proclaiming the advent of the kingdom. And now, it's landed him in jail. He is imprisoned by Herod. So, John has received revelation from God that Jesus is the one. He has continued his ministry of proclaiming Jesus faithfully. And now he finds himself persecuted and imprisoned. So, in that context, why does he now ask, are you the one? It seems to be a question which contradicts everything that's led up to it. That, that seems to, to call into doubt John's entire ministry up until now. What's behind that question? Is it doubt? Does he find himself suddenly wondering, hey, did I get this wrong? Did I name the wrong Messiah? Is there another Messiah I should be looking for? Is it as simple as that? He's just second guessing himself? Is there maybe something deeper going on? Is 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 this a question that has a strategy behind it? Is is John asking this question in order to prompt Jesus to some kind of action to get him off the fence, so to speak? You know, the disciples have expectations of what the Messiah will do, and Jesus doesn't always fulfill those expectations. Is John subject to similar expectations? Does he see Jesus not doing what he expected the Messiah to do? And is his question essentially a way of saying, hey, if it's you, then you need to get busy. Like Time is running out. You need to start doing Messiah stuff. Is that what's going on here? Is John looking for assurance from Jesus? John is making a great sacrifice. He's suffering. He's about to make an even greater sacrifice. It's not unusual when we're about to sacrifice something to seek some kind of assurance from those that we are sacrificing for. It's not necessarily about doubt, but about a desire for comfort in the midst of hardship. To know that, that I'm doing this for a reason. That yeah, I'm giving a lot up, but it's for a greater good. I don't think we can say for certain what's in John's mind. We can only speculate. We can only try to understand. And the more we try, I think the more we sympathize. Because all of those possible motivations are motivations that we ourselves have experienced. Like these are things we've also gone to Jesus looking for. These are questions we've asked from Jesus as well. Let's test these theories a little bit. Just live with them a little bit and think about these possibilities first doubt doubt could it be doubt that motivates him it's not unusual when you're tested to start having doubts you know this is true in every relationship this is true in friendships and marriages and family everything is good until suffering enters into the picture and then all bets are off you thought it was solid you thought it was wonderful and now you're wondering you're you're doubting it's the great Theologian Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the nose. When life punches you in the nose, you're not sure anymore. Do I I have any real friends? Do I have a good marriage at all? Do I have anyone that I can rely on? Doubt, simple doubt. Have I gotten it all wrong? But if John is just doubting here, if all he's doing is questioning everything that, that led up to the situation, We have to ask why. Why would he be doubting? What would be prompting these doubts? I think there's a clue actually in the text. We're told when he heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, then he sent people to ask this question. He's in prison. At these circumstances of his life, he's being punished, and now he's hearing about something going on in the outside world, and this is what prompts him, it pushes him. And I think that suggests to me anyway that it's more than just doubt. I don't think John is sitting in the prison just wondering, hey, did I get all wrong? I think there's more going on. I think he's looking at his circumstances and and thinking maybe this isn't the way it was supposed to work out. This is not what I expected to happen that day when I baptized the Messiah. Maybe he's hoping in asking this question to prompt from Jesus some sort of action that he thinks Jesus ought to be doing or ought to have done by now. They said the disciples, they expected a political king for a political kingdom. Maybe John had some kind of understanding like that as well. Maybe he thought his prophetic message would be followed up by a Messiah who would fix everything that he was complaining about who would undo the rule of the rulers of John's day, who were perpetrating the injustices that John himself was standing up against. He was in prison because he called out the king over his immoral lifestyle. Maybe he expected Jesus to back his play. If you're the Messiah, maybe you ought to be on the picket line with me. Maybe you ought to be calling out Herod as well. You should be side by side with me in this rather than doing this thing that you're doing? Did he expect Jesus to topple Herod instead of sacrificing his greatest prophet to Herod's wrath? Maybe. Maybe he was expecting Jesus to do things differently than he was, in which case it would make his plea really relatable to us because haven't we all expected Jesus to do things differently than he has? Haven't we all wanted from him more decisive action? immediate justice haven't we wanted him to fix what is wrong in our lives and to do it with urgency haven't we all felt what it's like not to get from jesus what we expected to ask ourselves hey what's going on are you the one are you the one or should i be looking for someone else i thought you were going to handle this was i wrong I don't think that's what motivates John here either. I don't think it's simple doubt, and I also don't think it's simple disappointment that Jesus isn't fulfilling his expectations. Maybe, maybe it partakes of those things, but for me anyway, I find this third idea of assurance one that fits John best. The path of proclaiming the kingdom has led to persecution. Persecution. The same persecution Jesus said would happen is now happening to John. He finds himself in prison, and I think in prison he knows he's not coming out. He knows what this path entails. And as he prepares himself to endure faithfully, I think he's seeking comfort. He's seeking assurance that the life I lay down is being laid down for the right reason. He just wants to hear Jesus, say the words. I hope this is John's motivation because to me it's the one that makes the most sense. And it's also one I can sympathize with. I mean, you can believe that Jesus is the One. And you can know in theory that He works in mysterious ways. And yet, when you find yourself called to sacrifice, to endure hardship, You just want to hear the words. You just want to hear Him say, yes, you're on the right path. Yes, this is what I'm asking you to do. Yes, I will be on the other side of this waiting for you. You just want to know that what you're enduring is what you're supposed to endure and that He's really going to be there for you. Again, as I say, we can't know for certain what motivated John. We can only speculate. But we can find ourselves in all of the possibilities. And we can bring all of these uncertainties and doubts and questions to Jesus. And Jesus' answer to them is the same answer that he would give to us in the same circumstances. The fascinating answer that Jesus gives, it's not what you might expect. Because Jesus doesn't give John some special message. He doesn't say, look, for anybody else, I'm not even sure I would humor these doubts, but for you, my special prophet, let me give you a word. Not at all. Instead, Jesus, speaking to John's messenger, says go and tell John what you hear and see. Just go and bear witness to all of this. Seemingly redundant, because the question was prompted by hearing about the deeds of the Christ. So essentially, He's sending back the same information that has already been received. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news. Preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by Me. These messengers from John, they've seen these things happening. They've witnessed the work of Jesus and now they're being Back to John to bear witness, and nothing more is added. Jesus doesn't say, And as you go, here's a special word for me to him. Here, lean in, I'm going to whisper it to you because it's just, no, none of that. His answer is the facts of his public ministry. His answer to John is the same testimony that he gives to everyone else. Now, when Jesus cites these six examples, these things, he's self-consciously using language from the prophet Isaiah. He's referring to messianic prophecies that you would find in Isaiah 29 and 35 and 42. So he's not just saying, here's the stuff going on, but he's giving a, a description of what's going on that fits with what was prophesied by Isaiah in messianic prophecy. So what he's saying is essentially the proof that I am the One, the proof that I am the Messiah is the stuff that I am doing that fulfills the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah. In other words, the exact same thing that Matthew's been doing throughout his Gospel. Every time he cites some Old Testament prophecy and he tells us Jesus fulfilled it, that's the logic of Jesus' response. Nothing more than that. It's the same testimony everyone else gets. It's the same testimony that we've been getting from Matthew. Indeed, I think Matthew learned the answer to the question from Jesus' example here. And yet, John does get an answer. Jesus doesn't say, look, don't bring your doubts to me. You of all people should be most convinced. He humors John he answers with respect. When he's asked this sincere question, he answers in sincerity. He points John to the signs because the signs testify to his authenticity. It's as if he's saying, look, this ministry of mine, it may not look like what you expect, but it is fulfilling the prophecies. And if it fulfills the prophecies, then it is the right one, whether it's what you thought it would be or not. The evidence is the fulfillment Of the signs. That's the assurance that John needed more than anything. To be reminded of what he already knew. To be pointed once again to the signs that he himself had been busy pointing others to. That was the assurance that Christ gave him. And it's the assurance that we need as well. As long as you're measuring Jesus according to your own expectations. As long as he's only who he says he is to the extent that He fulfills your hopes of Him, you're trusting in Him when your needs are met and doubting Him when they're not being met, then you'll always question. You'll always doubt. So you have to turn away from your own heart, from your own experience, and you have to rest in the signs themselves. You have to be reminded objectively That what Jesus did fulfilled the prophecy. That He was the one who was to come. That there was no other to look for. We put our trust in things that work. We put our trust in things that deliver results. And we tend to doubt when something doesn't seem to be working anymore. When we're not getting the results we were hoping for. That's what breeds doubts. But if Matthew chapter 10 is actually true then our lives are going to be filled with a lot of things that will prompt us to doubt if we're gauging based on fulfilled expectation on getting what we want. We have to have something else to put our hope in. So Jesus gives us these signs to cling to. Jesus comforts John and then He turns around and actually does something interesting. He uses John to comfort us. He gives comfort to John by pointing him to the signs, but then he turns to the people and starts talking about John and telling them, basically, John is a sign that should give comfort to you. The prophet Malachi, the last of the writing prophets, had foretold the return of Elijah in chapter 4, verse 5 of Malachi. Now, Jesus is declaring that that John the Baptist is actually the fulfillment of, of that prophecy that he is actually Elijah returns. He actually quotes from Micah 3:1 here in our text, like specifically applying that prophetic text to the life of John the Baptist. Right? He is Elijah come again as Malachi said he would. Remember Elijah proclaimed God's word with great power, but Elijah was also persecuted and hunted, he was driven into exile. Elijah was discouraged. Elijah was doubtful in his discouragement. Jesus says, "If you have ears to hear, then John is Elijah. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And as we see, even in his question, he fits the bill. He, he seems very Elijah-like, even in this way. But it's astonishing to contemplate what Jesus is saying here. The people have all witnessed these messengers from John who've come and shown that John in prison has this great question about the Messiahship of Jesus. And after answering the question, Jesus turns to the people in praise of John. What a great prophet he is. He's the fulfillment of this prophecy. He too is a sign who should give encouragement to you. The one who seeks a sign is himself a sign. It's profound. And if you're questioning Jesus, you might actually find yourself in the same situation. At the same time that you question and you doubt, you yourself may be evident that He is who He says He is. You seek a sign, you want assurance, you have doubt, you want Jesus to speak to you. And even now, in your questioning, you may already be a sign testifying to the people around you of the goodness and identity of Jesus, just as John was. It was John in his moment of weakness who was called out as a sign of hope and encouragement by Jesus. You may find yourself in exactly that situation. You may already be evidence in the eyes of others, an assurance to them that Jesus is the One, even as you question and seek to be assured on that. That's exactly what John was. He was a piece of doubting evidence. Even in his uncertainty, he was testifying to who Jesus was. He was proof of the thing that he was looking for proof of. If you are in Christ, then so are you. Because none of us are in Christ holy as far as our own commitment goes. None of us are are 100% all of us have uncertainty, doubt, wavering. And all of us, when tested, falter. And yet, even as we are, we too bear witness to His saving power. This answer that Jesus gives is an answer that we should cling to. Because we have all around us signs of His work in the world. All around us signs. And it's easier to see those signs in the lives of others sometimes than in our own lives. It's easier to see how the suffering of others is meant to test and purify them, not just punish them, than it is to recognize when our own suffering is contemplated. We need one another in this way. like We need to be signs of God's faithfulness to one another, encouragement to one another, so that when we in our various seasons and trials doubt, we can assure and testify to one another. That's the way it works in this season of God's kingdom. As we embark on this study of chapter 11 and chapter 12, one of the things we're going to see is although the kingdom has been inaugurated and is being announced with great power, it's constantly running into resistance. No matter how great the works of Jesus are, there's always going to be people with questions and doubts, uncertainties, always people pushing back Resisting, And the question for us is always going to be, as we read this and also as we live, what does this resistance mean for the kingdom? Because it's the fact of the resistance that makes following so hard. If there wasn't this resistance, this hardship, it would be easy to believe in Him and easy to follow after Him. But in fact, what we'll see again and again is that the resistance too confirms Christ's kingship. Jesus is challenged sincerely by John. He answers sincerely and directly. He reveals the profundity of his mission and the profound certainty that he is the one. He does all that. But what we're going to see is the questions don't end. The uncertainties are not done away with by just saying, well, look at the signs and everything should be good. The resistance is ongoing. And so our need to, to think about what that means is ongoing as well. John's ministry was important not just because John was a not just because he was Elijah returned, but also because John's life marks the end of something and the beginning of something else. John's ministry marks the end of the Old Covenant era. Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John all of the Old Testament, all of the old covenant economy, looked forward to something, right and when we talk about this, when we talk about it, yeah, we look forward to Christ, but Jesus says it looks to John. he dates the inauguration of this new epoch with the message of John the Baptist. Everything that went before it comes to a head, a climax in the greatest prophet of the old covenant order, John the Baptist. Right? That's the end of that age and the beginning of a new one. Jesus also says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Here he's not talking about the age that has come and gone. He's talking about the new age that we now live in. He says, from John until now, this is the way it is. And the way it is, is conflict. Right, there's conflict. Now, the phrase that's translated here has "violence, violent taken by force" is actually famously difficult to render. If you compare different English translations of the Bible, you'll see a lot of variation in the way that that phrase is translated because there's great uncertainty in in, in exactly the point that is being made. So much so that if you read the ESV expository commentary, so our text here, our translation is the English Standard Version, and there's a a commentary that goes along with it and is keyed to it. But if you turn to this passage in that commentary, you'll find it says, actually, the best translation is probably the one in the New Living Translation. (laughs) Honestly, sorry about that. In the New Living Translation, that phrase is rendered the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent people are attacking it. So you see the difference. It's a contrast that Jesus seems to be making between the advance of the kingdom and the response to its advance. That the kingdom is advancing forcefully, but as it advances, it is being forcefully attacked as well. That as it gains ground, the ground is being contested. So, as the kingdom grows, what you should expect is conflict, not less. That's the norm for this age. The way things are now, from John to now, he says, there's going to be conflict. This, Jesus says, is an epoch of conflict, epoch, E P O C H, an age, an era where conflict like this will be the norm. This is the way it's meant to be. In other words, resistance now is not an anomaly. The way Jesus presents it, the resistance is a characteristic of the age. We live in an epoch of struggle. This age of the kingdom's inauguration is a time of struggle. Which means that the suffering, the setbacks that we experience now are not objectively reasons to doubt Jesus who He is, they are in fact confirmation that His kingdom is on the move. As His kingdom moves forward, it is attacked violently, Jesus says. Thus, the words of Jesus are assigned to John that He is the One. What Jesus does, becomes assigned to John to assure Him. And then John himself is assigned to us that Jesus is the One. But we can go farther than that and say that the attacks which cause the questions to be asked in the first place are also signs. It's not just that the works are a sign. It's not just that John himself is a sign. It's not just that we are signs to one another, but that the very resistance all around us is a sign testifying to His kingdom come. If you're looking... Signs that Jesus' kingdom is on the move. Don't just count your blessings. Count your suffering too. Count your sacrifices. Count the attacks. Count the resistance. Because all of it testifies to His work. If you have eyes to see, then you are surrounded by signs that Jesus is the One. Jesus says to you, The same thing he said to John's messengers. Look at the work. Look at the fulfillment of the prophecy. And then go and tell what you hear and see. Go and bear witness to the fulfillment that you see. Go and bear witness to the work that I have done. For indeed I am the one. There is no other. Thank you for listening.